Please rise for the reading of God's word. Okay, we're going to be reading from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because he, we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever he keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open there to 1 John 3. As we look at this passage together and uh, join me in prayer as we ask God to meet us and take these words and apply them to our hearts. Gracious Father, we do pray that as we open your word this morning, that it is your voice we would hear. Lord, help us to, um, to quiet our hearts, to allow your word to give perspective to our lives, to speak to our questions, our doubts, our fears. Lord, meet us and take your word and uh, change us. Pray that you would change us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you haven't lost your faith in humanity entirely, uh, you need only watch the nightly news for about 10 minutes to put a nail in that coffin. Uh, this past week, I had the privilege of chaperoning, uh, privilege, it was a privilege, of chaperoning fifth and sixth graders on a field trip to New York City. Um, and uh, it was a great trip, a history field trip. But when we finally got to the hotel and are getting settled, I let the kids turn the television on for a few minutes to kind of wind down and, you know, and, uh, you know, it, at that point of the night, it was basically every single channel was the news. And so they turned on one news story. And of course, what's on the news in New York City? 
the violence that's happening in New York City, virtually every single thing. So, so we flip from one channel about a stabbing or something like that to another channel about a robbery, and pretty soon the kids are just getting anxious. We just turn the thing off so that they'd actually be able to sleep at night. But among the, uh, the seemingly limitless supply of troubling news stories that we can find, there are none that rob our faith in humanity or turn our stomachs more than when those kinds of crimes happen within a family unit. Uh, Stories of abuse, neglect, even murder within a family, those are the most, uh, most disturbing and most shocking examples of just how broken and fallen this world is. And that's because not only is somebody being wronged or hurt or taken advantage of, but it's happening in the environment that is supposed to be the safest and most loving environment in the world. You don't have to be a Christian or a moral conservative to recognize how wrong and evil something like that is. It's just so obviously wrong. Everyone knows that it's evil, that families are not supposed to work that way. Of all of the places that we should be able to trust, families should be marked by love and security and wholeness. And the same should be true of the family of God. The church is a family. That's one of the uh, most frequent metaphors that, and it's more than a metaphor, it is a reality. Uh, the church is a family. We are related to each other. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. God is our Father, and Jesus, our Savior and our King, is also described as our older brother, Hebrews. And so if we are in Christ, we are children of God. We have been born of Him, as John put it in our passage last week. And if we are God's children, then we ought to love God's family. You can't claim to love the Father without also loving your brothers and sisters. We cannot be like Cain, who murdered his own brother. Instead, we need to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. That's what John is going to uh, encourage us to do in our passage this morning. Now, if you're just joining us, we're working our way through the letters of John. First uh, John, second John, third John. And John was an apostle who lived and followed Jesus during his life in ministry. Uh, he wrote one of the four Gospels, the one that's called John. And, uh, you know, and, and in that Gospel, he tells the story of Christ and, and the story specifically of what God is doing to break through the darkness of this world and bring light and life to all who will trust in Christ. And now what he's doing in his letters, though, is he's taking the message of the Gospel of John And he's applying that to a church or some churches uh, who have been facing a a particular trial in their life and experience. They found themselves in a difficult situation. Churches that have been troubled by false teachers who've kind of come up and then left them, but who are trying to take as many as they can with them, trying to convince them that if you really want to have an intimate relationship with God, You don't need Jesus. You need something else. You don't need to worry about sin. And all of these different elements, they've presented a a way to 
to know God intimately that has nothing to do with Jesus. And so John, is, his goal here in his letters is to reassure the church that the gospel that they believed in the beginning is the same gospel they need to keep believing to walk and grow in intimacy with God. And he's wanting to, in the process, encourage them that they can be confident of their relationship with God, that they really, truly do know him as their lives bear evidence of faith through love and obedience. Through love and obedience. And that's the note John landed on in the previous section that we looked at last week uh, at the end of chapter 3, verse 10. So if, you, if you've got your Bibles open, go ahead and look at chapter 3, verse 10 with me. He says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So last week when we looked at 228 to 3.10, uh, John focused on the first test of faith uh, in verse 10 there, the test of obedience. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And we talked about how our attitude towards sin uh, tells us something about our relationship with God, how real it is. Uh, you can't take a, a cavalier or comfortable posture towards sin and claim to follow or have intimate relationship with Jesus at the same time. Because Jesus is an enemy of sin. You can't be friendly with something and think of it as no big deal when the one you're trying to serve came to destroy that. And so uh, the test of obedience as evidence of our faith. As John moves forward now in 3.11 through 24, he picks up the second test that he mentions in verse 10, the test of love. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so intimacy with God is is shown not only in our obedience, but it's shown, uh, it shows itself in love for God's family, in love for his church. Now, this is not the first time that John has brought up the, the subject and the importance of loving one another within the body of Christ. John, you'll have noticed by now, brings up an issue, talks about something else, comes back to that issue, and, and he comes back over and over. There's kind of a, a cyclical pattern to his train of thought in this letter. Uh, he's already talked about the call to love one another. Back in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, he said, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And when we were in that passage, we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about that because we knew John would come back to that subject eventually. And here we are this morning. As he picks up that same subject now and elaborates on it, uh, we can see in, in chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, um, we can kind of see three sections to this passage. The first is what we might call the call to love. We have been called to love in verses 11 through 15. The second is the practice of love, what it actually looks like to do that, uh, verses 16 to 18. And then the third part of our passage connects this 
test of love to one of the bigger subjects, one of the bigger questions that John has been addressing throughout the book, this assurance that we have of our relationship with God. And so verses 19 to 24 show us the confidence of love. So the call to love, the practice of love, the confidence of love. And we'll start with the call in verses 11 to 15. So verse 11, chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John's not saying much new there. I mean, that's kind of, we've heard that before, right? Well, that's exactly his point. This is the message we've heard from the beginning. This call to love the body is essential to what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is basic Christianity 101. We are called to love one another. Jesus told us back in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, which isn't technically new, but there's new elements to it. It's an old commandment, uh, as he says later, but a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Christianity 101, basic foundation essence of what it means to be a follower of God. It means it involves loving his children. But what does he mean by love? What does that look like? Uh, Well, he's going to answer that very directly in verses 16 to 18, uh, John is. Uh, But first, John tells us what this doesn't mean, what it doesn't mean to love uh, one another by showing us a negative example, uh, namely Cain. So if you have uh, grown up in the church hearing Bible stories, or if you've ever, you know, read through the book of Genesis, you'll probably be familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. That's the Cain that John is talking about here. It's an ancient story. It's all the way back to the beginning. It's, uh, you know, these are the first children of the first parents in all of human history. And it's our first story of what life looks like outside the garden, outside of God's special presence, life in a fallen and broken world. And it shows us what kind of evil we are capable of. So two brothers make their offerings to God. God accepts Abel's offer, but not Cain's. We're not exactly told why, but God, I'm sure, has his reasons. And Cain responds in jealousy and anger. And instead of, you know, trying to honor God, chooses to kill his brother and take out the competition kills his brother, hides his body in a field, and then pretends before God that he doesn't know what happened to him. That's not how families are supposed to work, is it? That's not, that is the, I mean, John is pulling out the big guns here. Here is the antithesis of what it means to love. This is the model of all that's wrong and broken within families in a fallen world. This is the power of sin. This is what we're capable of when we walk in the opposite direction from God. And John points us to that story to help us understand what it means that we're called to love one another. He says in in 1 John 3.12, We should not be like Cain, 
who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. His own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be like Cain. Okay, John. Got it. Not going to murder anybody. Great. I mean, it, it feels a little bit like John's being kind of dramatic at this point. You have all of the examples of telling you what love doesn't look like. This is kind of the easy one. We know we're not supposed to do that one, right? That's a bit overkill here. Uh, hopefully nobody here is, you know, sitting here plotting how to get away with murder of somebody down the pew from them right now. Just, I, I hope not. But John is trying to make a slightly more nuanced point than simply don't kill another Christian. Uh, Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about the true nature of anger, of, of being angry at your brother or sister. He said it was the same thing as spiritually murdering them, to, to cut them down in your heart before God is just as bad as cutting them down in the flesh. And that's the same point John makes in verse 15. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so in in bringing us to the example of Cain, John is not just warning us against killing each other. He's warning us against the absence of love. Cain is a model of what it looks like when love is absent within a family. As he says at the end of verse 14, John does, whoever does not love abides in death. That's the problem. That's the temptation to not love one another, which is as good as what Cain did. To not love is as good as what Cain did. He represents the absence of love. There's another word we often use for that, hatred. Now, that word can mean all sorts of things, but, but what it means here is the absence of love. To not love is to hate, which, of course, can show itself in murder, but it can show itself in all sorts of other ways, in neglect, in indifference or callousness. Uh, it can show itself through marginalizing or slandering. Kind of a, a prideful arrogance. And, and while this sort of thing is quite common in the fallen world around us, uh, John says in, in verse 13, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Uh, that's kind of the ways of the fallen world. We are called within the body of Christ to a different standard. Yes, we've lost our faith in humanity. We see what humanity is capable of. But God calls us to something better than that, something we're not capable of in and of ourselves, something that's only possible through the power of Christ, and that is real, genuine love. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. The church is to be marked by love. And our love for one another is actually a testimony that we truly belong to God because we're no longer following the ways of this world, the ways of death. We're following Christ and the ways of life. 
Intimacy with God means abiding in love for one another. And so what does that then mean for the church to be marked by love? Um, does that mean that we never have any arguments? That we, you know, every meeting we have is just smooth sailing? And uh, does it mean that we never, uh, that we always get along with each other? That we never have misunderstandings? That we never hurt one another? We never offend or take advantage of one another? Because if that's what John is saying, then I'm not sure he's actually met another Christian. Because that happens. That happens. And, and so is he saying that, that to love one another means we will never make those mistakes? I don't think so. I mean, with our passage last week, uh, you know, he's not saying that we will never sin against each other. He is saying that that kind of hatred should not characterize us. It should be the exception if it happens, and it should be a burden we fight against, not something that we're just complacently accepting of. Uh, He is saying that it should not characterize us, and if it does, then there's a very good reason to question the genuineness of our relationship with God as a church. If, If we don't know how to love each other, then that is evidence that we may not actually know what it means to love God. So John is saying that, but it, more than that, he is, he's not just telling us what should not characterize us in the church. He's telling us what should, and that's as he moves on in verses 16 to 18 to show us what it actually means to love one another. That is the practice of love in verses 16 to 18. And, you know, I don't need to point this out. It's kind of obvious, but the word love is a pretty slippery word uh, today it can mean so many different things to so many different people um, you know just you know for example for many uh, love is predominantly an emotion an affection a feeling that we have it's something that we fall in and out of depending on our mood or the other person's behavior or our circumstances in life in which case that that version of love is essentially more about me than the other person when it when it's simply an emotion uh, for others uh, love is is a, you know it's a, the sentimentality of kind of a, expressing my affection for someone so i love simply by telling them i love them uh, which is a nice safe easy thing to do no, it's love that doesn't cost us very much all sorts of different definitions But when we look at at a biblical portrait of love, what John means when he calls us to love one another, what God means when he calls us to love one another, there's nothing selfish or safe about that kind of love within the body of Christ. John shows us that by pointing us to the example of Jesus as the standard and pattern of love. Verse 16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for the brothers and sisters. So if you want to know what it looks like to love the family of God, what it looks like for us to love one another, what John's calling us to, we need look no further than our Savior, Jesus. And how did Jesus love us? By laying down his life. By laying down his life. 
John Piper relates a story that he heard from uh, Chuck Colson about a group of American prisoners during World War II who were forced to do hard labor within their prison camp. Each had a shovel and would dig all day and then come in and, and give an account of his tool in the evening. They'd collect them. And one evening, 20 prisoners were lined up by the guard and the shovels were counted. The guard counted 19 shovels. And he turned in rage to the 20 prisoners, demanding to know which one of them had did not bring his shovel back and no one responded. The guard then took out his gun and said that he would shoot five men if the guilty prisoner did not step forward. After a moment of tense silence, a 19-year-old soldier stepped forward with his head bowed. The guard grabbed him, took him, and shot him, and then turned and warned the others not to do what he had done. When he left, the men counted the shovels, and there were 20. The guard had miscounted, and the boy had given his life for his friends. Imagine the emotions that must have filled those soldiers' hearts as they looked down at their friend. In five or ten seconds of silence, the boy had weighed his whole future in the balance. A future wife, an education, a new truck, children, a career, fishing with his dad. And he chose death so that others might live. Jesus said in John fifteen thirteen, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. It's a beautiful picture. And what Jesus did in his love for us was infinitely more costly than all that that soldier gave for his friends. Jesus did not operate out of a self-preservation or a self-protection His goal in life was not upward mobility. He didn't make much of himself. Rather, he emptied himself of all but love. And he did not do it from a safe distance either. He set aside his glory in heaven to take on human flesh and to become like us in every way except for sin. He made himself vulnerable to Everything that's wrong with this fallen world. And all of it found its way to him on the cross. His love was not cheap. It wasn't convenient. It cost him everything. His very life. And he willingly gave it up for us. He died for our sins in order that we might live the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That is our definition of love. That is the standard and example and model of what we are called to in the way that we treat each other within the body of Christ. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, that doesn't mean in our love that we do everything for one another that Jesus did for us. There's a uniqueness to the cross. 
when we lay down our lives, we're not bearing sin on uh, someone's behalf the way Jesus bore our sin. He did that uniquely, and that is done. Rather, what John's emphasizing through the model and standard of Jesus is the costliness of love and the practical embodiment of love. That it's not cheap and it's not safe and you can't just kind of sit back and and use your words and think that that counts. We lay our lives down. It's dying to self, putting the well-being of others before yourself, even at great cost. And to clarify what that looks like, John gives us a real-world example in verse 17. He says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If you, you want to put flesh on the bones of what we're called to do in love, here's an example. When you've got the world's needs and you see a brother in need and you don't do anything about it, how can you say you love God or know his love if that's what you do? That's John's question. Hatred or the absence of love does not simply take the shape of murder. It comes in the form of neglect and selfishness and greed and laziness. But real love is costly. It's inconvenient. It's practical. It goes beyond the the sentimentality and words and expresses itself in action. Love works. It does something. Verse 18. Little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So what does that look like for us here at Westgate? Does this mean that every time I get an email or an announcement about a service opportunity, that if I don't jump up and take it, I'm somehow hating my family? Depends on how desperate we are for volunteers. No, no, practical love does not mean that we become the new savior for the church. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying at least three things here. One, that we recognize that everything we have truly belongs to God and is entrusted to us for the sake of serving him. Nobody can meet every need. But God has equipped each of us to meet some needs. And we need to be willing to take what he's given us and part with it in order to meet that need in love. So recognizing that everything we have truly belongs to God and is entrusted to us for his service. The second thing, it means we need to keep our eyes open to the needs of others. If you see your brother or sister in need, John says, and there are some needs that we don't have to actually look that hard to see. A single mom who needs a break or a meal, or some adult conversation. An elderly person who can't get around on their own and needs a ride, or some companionship, or someone to come rake the leaves. A student who needs a mentor. Someone new to the area who needs a friend. Someone who's sick and needs prayer, 
someone who's hurting financially and needs counsel and guidance and relief. But sometimes we have to do more than simply keep our eyes open. Sometimes we actually have to ask people. You know, we, we can kind of suspect if there's a need, but not everybody's going to tell us straight out. Um, maybe they're embarrassed. Maybe there's some pride. Maybe they don't want to be an inconvenience. But sometimes we simply just have to ask or we'll never know. I remember when, when uh, we were in grad school, uh, we were living in the Chicago suburbs, and one of my professors, every time he saw Carissa and me, would ask not simply how we're doing, but is there bread on the table? It was one of his constant questions. And then when we graduated, we were working in a nearby church. Same thing. Whenever he saw us, how are you doing? Is there bread on the table? I will never forget that. That tangible love. And so watch and ask. And if you're someone who has a need, be willing to tell. Be willing to actually say, yes, that would be helpful. Thank you. You need to understand that, it, that if you have a need, you are not a burden to this congregation. You are family, and we love you, and we want to help you. We want to share in that with you. And to not let us know about it is not only to, it's not only bad for you, it deprives your friends and family of the chance to serve you and show their love. It deprives them of the chance to love God by loving his children. So we need to be open. We need to keep our eyes open, but we need to be open when we find ourselves hurting. So recognize that whatever you have comes from God. Be ready to part with it. Keep your eyes open and be willing to ask if necessary. And then finally, and very simply, the third thing that John is telling us to do is to do something. To move beyond words and into actions. Prepare meals for the freezer of someone who's having a baby or in the hospital Write a check for someone's medical bills that they can't pay. Contribute to the benevolence fund that we have at church. We have a fund as part of this congregation that exists to help you when times get tough. So contribute to that. Give up an afternoon to to sit with someone in their home who can't get out very often. To listen, to love someone who's hurting. Don't just do something. Uh, Excuse me, don't just talk about something. Do something. Do something. And just by way of application, uh, there's a need this afternoon I could bring to your attention. Uh, Charlene Harper has a lot of boxes that need to be moved into a storage unit before they close at four today. Uh, Mark prayed for her and their move this weekend. Uh, There's a lot of work, and we can show our love tangibly if you're available to help with that afterwards this afternoon. Do something. And what you'll find that is that in the doing, there is great joy and love. There is great joy in the service. And a growing confidence in our relationship with God. And that brings us to the last section of the passage and, and to one of the bigger questions that John is asking throughout this book Our practical love for one another actually reassures our hearts that we are part of God's family. 
So the confidence of love in verses 19 to 14. So if you remember, again, John's writing to a church that is being told that they don't really truly know God well enough, that there's more to God than they've experienced and that following Jesus is the wrong path toward it. And so it's not shocking to um, to think that that some of them are perhaps struggling with doubts about the genuineness of their relationship. Am I missing something? To, you know, their own hearts beginning to believe what the false teachers have been telling them. Echo their accusations. Can their own hearts condemning them for not doing enough or not uh, missing or for missing out on something, for not really being of the truth. And so in verses 19 to 24, John is reinforcing the fact that they are of the truth, that their relationship with God through Jesus is real. And one of the ways that they know this is through the love that they are displaying practically for one another. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. By this, what I just got done saying about loving one another practically, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is bigger than our heart and he knows everything. So when we love one another within the church practically, there's a confidence that grows in our hearts. Our love is evidence that we belong to God. Just like last week, our obedience is evidence. It's not the basis of our relationship, but it's evidence of that relationship. So is our love for one another. And and if I can for a moment, I want to just encourage you that I see this in our congregation. I see practical love on display frequently among this body of believers. And I want to encourage you in that because you should be encouraged. You should take heart that that God is at work through you. We're not perfect. We have a long ways to go. But God is at work. Our love for him is real. And one of the ways we know that is that our love for each other is real. I know this because I see it in the way that you care for each other giving rides, giving cars, giving meals, giving time and energy to help move or to fix something, or giving money, giving gifts, giving of yourselves sacrificially to one another. I see that happen frequently. And not only do I see it, I've experienced it. I think many of us can say that. We've experienced that kind of self-giving love. Uh, I can't count the number of times that people have laid down their lives for me and my family. Uh, this week alone, uh, you know, Carissa has been away in Florida helping her sister uh, who ha- just had a baby and, and the, the child faces uh, some significant health uh, hurdles. And while she's been away, I've had more offers of help than I can actually accept. There have been four different families who've helped watch our kids during this week, some of them giving up entire days to do so. Uh, We've been given food, for which my wife will thank you for me not having to feed my kids pizza and Chick-fil-A all week long. And, uh, and, And it's not because anybody's trying to score points with the pastor. 
you know, I've got some sort of agenda, and if I go help him out, maybe he'll help me. No, none of that. And it's certainly not because we're worthy of it. It's love. We've been the recipients of love, and we're overwhelmed by it. And, and, and I don't believe that my story is unique. And so I want, can we do better? Absolutely. We can always grow. But you should be encouraged that God is at work and that one of the evidences of that is the way that you love each other. Our love for one another is evidence that we truly belong to God. And, and that not only shows God's love to those around us, it, it reassures our hearts as well. We're able to trust. Even, you know, I don't know about you, but my heart condemns me, convicts me sometimes. Sometimes it's true. I'm doing something wrong and I need to repent. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's the voice of the enemy telling me I'm not good enough and God's done with me. I'm never going to amount to anything. And when that happens, we need to recognize that God is bigger than our hearts and that he knows everything. He has evidence to bring to the courtroom that our enemy and our hearts aren't even privileged to. And one of the evidences that he presents is exhibit A, look how this person has loved. That's one of the evidences. And so our love reassures our hearts. It allows us to rest in God, even when our hearts condemn us. And God wants us to rest in him. He wants us not to live with this kind of, uh, you know, a, a fearful relationship, walking in shame, always kind of rehearsing everything I've done that makes me unworthy as a follower of Christ. He wants us to believe the gospel and to walk in intimacy, not fear. And he wants us to pray to him in intimacy, expecting him to answer and not doubting his love or his power. That's what he says in verses 21 to 22. Beloved, if if our heart does not condemn us, if we have this confidence, uh, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, if you read that verse by itself, outside the context of everything around it, you might think that John is kind of giving us a formula for how to get God to do what you want him to do. You... And, you know, you keep up these things, you obey, and then when you ask him, he's obligated to answer. That's not what John is doing. John is showing us what an intimate relationship with God looks like. A trust where we pray with faith, expecting God to work, and we show our faith through our obedience and love. That's what an intimate relationship with God looks like. And the commandment that anchors that assurance of faith is in verses 23 to 24. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So obedience, faith, and love. Three tests of genuine relationship with God. John mentions the Spirit here at the end, and uh, we'll come back to that next time because that's his setup for the subject that he's now going to address at the beginning of chapter 4. 
But this is how a healthy family interacts, in love. A love that flows from an intimate relationship with God. A love that follows the pattern of Christ's self-giving love for us. A love that recognizes that every single thing we have comes from God and is given to us that it might be used to serve God. A love that doesn't just talk, but does something. A love that works. It demonstrates to the world that we have passed from death to life and that we are disciples of Christ. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, no one can look at a passage like this and feel better about themselves. Because when we consider the standard and example of love you've called us to, Lord, we we confess that we all fall terribly short. Even our best, most selfless acts of love are pale by comparison to the love Christ has shown us. And yet, Lord, I pray as we reflect on this passage and meditate on it that, that you would not only convict us, but that you would encourage us, reminding us that, that the smallest gift given to you in faith is treasured and that you use it not because we are great, not because we are worthy, but because Christ is our Savior and Advocate and King. That His blood purifies our offerings and makes them worthy and presentable to You. So Lord, encourage our hearts. Help us to do a better job at loving, but encourage us where we're doing a good job, reminding us that this is evidence of You. And help us never move on from the foundation and fountainhead of all that is love, and that is Christ. Lord, keep us anchored and dependent and delighting in the gospel of Jesus.